Hi, my name is Andy Chamberlain, and this is the Creative Writer's Tool Belt, the podcast that gives you advice and insight that you can apply straight away to your own writing. You can find out more at my website, andrewjchamberlain.com, where you'll also find information about the Creative Writer's Tool Belt handbook, which condenses all of the very best advice and insight from my expert guests and me in one place. I hope you enjoy this episode of the Creative Writer's Tool Belt and that it's helpful to you on your writing journey. And welcome to episode 117 of the Creative Writers Tool Belt. I've been away during some of April, which is why you haven't heard very much from me recently, but I'm back to share with you a great conversation I had with the sports writer, award-winning journalist and author, Brendan O'Meara. So before that, just one piece of news. The first episodes of the Creative Writers Tool Belt video channel are now live on YouTube. So you can go and check them out by just looking up the Creative Writers Tool Belt there. And I'm hoping to be able to reach some people who might not listen to podcasts. But you guys who do, please do go and check out those videos and subscribe if you'd like to get notifications of new episodes when they're launched. I am really excited about the video channel and I hope to bring all of the best material from the podcast and my book to the screen in the coming months. So back to this episode, and I recently had a wonderful conversation with Brendan O'Meara, the guy who holds the record for getting up earlier than anyone else that I know so that he can have time to write. Brendan writes long features on anything from baseball to horse racing to old dairy farms to Kentucky Bourbon. As well as his writing, Brendan also hosts the Creative Nonfiction Podcast, the show where he speaks to the best artists about creating works of nonfiction. This is leaders in narrative journalism, documentary film, radio, essay and memoir, teasing out habits, routines and processes so that listeners can apply those tools of mastery to their own work. And in this conversation, we talk about the urgent of writing, building a good routine and momentum for our work, and bridging the gap between what we'd like to write and what we end up producing. I had a great time talking to Brendan. I hope you enjoy listening to our conversation. Here it is. So, Brendan, welcome to the Creative Writers Tool Belt. Well, thank you very much for having me. I am honored and uh, I'm thrilled to be able to talk shop with you. I love your podcast. You and I are sort of in the same cluster on the Potomatic arts literature area. So it's it's wonderful to be able to touch base with someone in the same cluster. And I'm just real thrilled to be able to uh, talk to you and uh, maybe imbue some of what I can offer, some value to your listeners. So thanks for having me. It is great to have you. you know, and I think we'll get a lot of value out of this. So I, I want to start anyway by asking you a little bit about your childhood and your background. Um, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got into writing, what were your aspirations when you were younger, that kind of thing. Sure. Uh, when I was younger, uh, you know, as, as a kid growing up, basically the only thing I ever wanted to be was a professional baseball player. And that was right. That was sort of like my sole ambition. And I, I actually was I was a pretty darn good player. You know, looking back on it, I was just good enough that the idea of possibly being drafted to play play in the pros was like not completely delusional. <laughs> so it was. So, yeah, it was one of those yeah. things like uh, looking back on it, I was like, oh, clearly I wasn't good enough, but I was just good enough then at every level I played. Yeah. To be like, well, this isn't a total and complete delusion. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so I was like, you know, I was a decent student and a, and a pretty and a pretty good athlete. So I you know, sort of on that path. And um, I, I wasn't you know, when it comes to the the, the writing thing, like I, I kind of had a knack for it through middle school and high school, but I never really gave it much pause as a as a vocation. I uh, I, I started keeping a journal uh, when I was 16 and so I'm going on 21 years of keeping a pretty steady journal. Mm. 
And um, that came out of, you know, my best friend from high school, he did um, he did the luge. And so he would be gone for several months in the winter of the school year. And so I started what was called when I still tongue in cheekly call my journal, the Omera Chronicles. And <laughs> I was detailing every day of the school year that he was away. And then I like I mailed it off to him when he was in Europe, you know, touring the loose circuit. Yes. You know, and he, and he sent it back. So I was just keeping this log of what was going on. And when he got back and was done, I just I was sort of hooked on on that. And so I just kind of kept it going and it's been going ever since. So, you know, as I got into college, I actually was a biology major and it's still finished with a biology degree, mainly because I was good at it in high school. Yeah, yeah. And figured that would just be the natural transition. And I was good at that. I might as well just study it in college, maybe go into research or med school, perhaps. It seemed safe and possibly a good way to make a living. And, you know, it's still writing and kind of had that itch and was getting into some better writers, reading better books, you know, Kurt Vonnegut being a big influence. And it was like I started to want to elicit a feeling in other people that the Vonnegut's of the world were eliciting in me. Like when I saw their byline or their thing, it was like, oh, I know who I'm signing up for. And that I, I get so jacked up and excited. It would be <laughs> kind of cool to do that for other people, too. So mm. there was always like that ego component to being a writer. And um, <laughs> so about three weeks from graduation, I stayed another year. I actually added journalism because it seemed like the practical way to become a writer. Yes. And yeah. stayed one more year at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and just did a crash course in journalism and leaned into writing a bit more because biology just wasn't, it was always a square peg round hole with me in terms of making it a a profession. I just, no matter how hard I tried to like it, I just couldn't, I couldn't like see myself going that way. And then, but then the journalism light bulb went on and I was like, oh, I'm like that, that kind of makes sense. And I'd love to you know, get into the narrative journalism that the John McPhee's and the Susan Orleans of the world mm-hmm. and Gay Talese and so forth were doing. I'm like, ooh, if I can, if I can even tap into those wells at all, I'll, I'll consider it a pretty good life. So it's interesting because a lot of the writers that I interview, and and I think I would probably include myself in this group, we're attracted by the idea of telling stories, fiction stories, and we then gravitate towards a, a genre of some kind, usually. Some people are quite quite into literary fiction, but for you, it was it was nonfiction and it was journalism. So, why do you think it was that you were attracted to the kind of disciplines and the life of, of of nonfiction rather than fictional stories? When it came to pure narrative, I think a lot of us come to it through fiction, and I was mm. no different. And when I took um. A, a, a literary journalism of the 20th century with uh, Norman Sims, like a, a good friend and mentor and professor. He had read um, Tom Wolfe's The Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test, and it just like blew his mind. It, it just unlocked what true stories could be. And he said, you know, he just couldn't get it. He couldn't really buy into fiction anymore because it was made up. It wasn't real, even though, you know, some people can argue you can get to a greater truth in fiction than you can in nonfiction. But it was the the sense that you, you never knew where the line was between pure fiction and the nonfiction. Like those lines totally and completely blur to sure. the point where yeah. you don't know what's real and what's not. And so that kind of when he said that, it was like a glass broke. And like not in a not in a bad way, but it like kind of shattered fiction for me in a lot of ways. Mm. That was just like there are so many great true stories out there. I would rather 
tap into those veins instead of having to use my imagination. Cause you know, as, as you've heard the saying, like truth is often stranger than fiction. And yeah. the more you dive into some of these great true stories told by some of the masters of the craft, you realize you can just go out there and do some digging and find some stuff that's been mm -hmm. underreported and blow it up and it'll be, it, it could be compelling. And then the hook of it all is that if done well and if done responsibly, it's true. And that makes it even more unbelievable. And it's just like, oh, my God, not only is the story amazing, it, it actually happened. <laughs> and that's what was that yeah. really, really resonated and sort of pumps through my blood. So what do you think fiction writers and most of the people that listen to my podcast are start writing fiction of some kind or another? What can we learn from journalism, from your experience uh, with nonfiction and, and your journalism training and all that, what, what are the lessons that we can pick up from you guys? I think when people tend to just rely too much on imagination, it can feel maybe a bit thinly veiled. But any reporter worthy of the name, and I'm actually a pretty crappy reporter itself. You know, there are so many. I just am. I'm not, I'm not the hard news guy. Like, I'm not going to be the one chasing ambulances and running to the flood scene to talk to the victims in 10 minutes after their house just got flooded or something. Okay. I, yeah. it, that does, cannot and does not appeal to me, nor does it for a lot of people. It's just a matter of taste. But that said, like the reporter sensibility of there's some Something that's interesting to you or something that feels a bit like there's more there. And then you just yeah. you go to those people and you start asking questions and you start speaking to those experts. And then you ask those people be like, all right, you know, who are maybe four to five people I should talk to? Uh, of course, when you do start doing the math, it starts growing exponentially of the people you can talk to. Yes. And even if you're writing fiction, you can't really go wrong with doing too much research. You always want to be in the position to throw stuff out. The more sort of digging and muckraking you can do, I think the more visceral scenes mm. and dialogue can mm. be. If you know, I think you know Jennifer Egan, who just wrote the Manhattan Beach, and you know it's the a visit from the Goon Squad. Like I heard an interview mm. with her recently, where you know she just did so much research into World War II divers who would like go under the ships to fix things. And I haven't read Manhattan Beach yet, but you get a sense of she did the type of reporting and research that a, a journalist would do. But you know she has the novelist sensibility to want to maybe get it more as more internal than sometimes you can get through nonfiction. But yeah, that that sense of, you know, a fiction writer can just take the, those researchy type sensibilities that reporters to have to to build their craft on. And then it'll just it'll just sort of deepen the flavor of, of any narrative if you can dig deeper in the research. And I think you can learn a lot about that from journalists. Kind of on that subject, what do you think we can learn us fiction guys around being observant from journalists uh, as I said not not just the kind of hack reporters that, but the kind of the kind of more narrative journalism that, that you're involved in what you can really pick up on is by being patient and receding into the background and just observing people in their element I think mm. just that outward looking thing and just see people doing their thing I love almost referring to doing narrative journalism or literary journalism or creative nonfiction, however you want to define it, as almost being more like an anthropologist than a reporter, where okay. you just kind of do these deep dives into subcultures. And I think uh, for fiction writers, too, who might want to have that deeper experience of being 
sort of immersed in it because then they can turn that around into whatever story uh, they want to get at. It's just having that, having a notebook handy, maybe even a voice recorder, certainly a camera. Mm. Um, oftentimes those are all wrapped into one device. So you've got all these True. wonderful tools at your disposal and you just kind of, you know, you sit back and try to just let those, let life unfold and, uh, you know, you're scribbling away and I, you know, as long as you've got the access and people are cool with you being there. I think that outward looking, that curiosity, um, that passion for wanting to be involved in that particular project and sub subgroup will really percolate and bubble once you have done your research and you get to your computer or your ledger and you start really writing and trying to bring all that stuff to life. Yeah. So I think it is that just that being comfortable receding into the background and not being too invasive and just having a curiosity and, a, and an empathic understanding for the people you're, you're following and trying to learn from can be a, it's certainly the tool that narrative journalists and reporters use, but uh, definitely you know, fiction writers can benefit too. So it's to kind of get out of your own head, so to speak. Yeah. Now you must collect quite a lot of research then for your stories. So how do you, how do you organize your research and how do you kind of sift through it and decide which bits are going to be the, the, the kind of diamonds and the nuggets that you're going to use in the story? Yeah. That, that great panning for gold, if you will. It's, uh, yeah. I love, I, 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 of course, I think a good lead domino for anyone is, you know, just Googling stuff, Googling articles you can yeah. get to. I'm definitely more of a tactile person. I love to be able to hold an article in my hand. So I'll print out a lot of stuff. And from that point, I will often highlight and I'll be like, okay, that's a good quote, or I could lift that and sort of massage that into dialogue. So yeah, like I'll have a bunch of articles of that nature highlighted. And then oftentimes that, that'll start start to get translated into note cards, which will go up on the cork board as sure. I go to sort of break out uh, a long article or even book length stuff. For when it comes to books, you maybe uh, someone recommends a book or you've read a you read this one book and, and you look in their notes and resources in the back and it just opens up a whole nother can of worms <laughs> and so you yeah so i have a lot of sticky notes sticking out of books just little things on, on these pages that'll be all right that's a great that's a great thing to have i know some people really lean on like evernote stuff to organize yeah. notes on i haven't gotten quite into that sometimes with the web clipper stuff is kind of nice to to clip that through the the Chrome extension, but oftentimes I, I print things out, and then once I I'll start organizing, you know, those things depending on maybe it's a if it's a truly linear type narrative, maybe along a timeline, and then from that point, kind of translating all these little clippings into note cards, which will which will which hangs on the wall, which then helps me just structure the actual writing part. But yeah, there is a lot of setting up that foundation, so then you can just let it rip when you um, start writing. Now, I get the impression that for a lot of the work that you do, there's a really strong emphasis on the human interest and the character, uh, that the people and what, how, what is happening with the people in the story. How do you make those stories engaging and interesting? So when you've looked at all, you've got all your research and you've got this information, but you want to really kind of capture your reader in, in what you're presenting to them. How do you do that? The real key, especially with you know, book length narrative. And it can be an especial, especially challenging sometimes with um, a long magazine feature or something, because um, then you don't quite have as much time. But it is just being patient and asking good questions and knowing when to shut up and just sit there and listen mm. or shut up and just 
let them do their thing. And cause then the longer you're there, the more comfortable they become with you, the more they realize that you're not doing like this hard news story that's going to publish tomorrow. Like with the, the Rachel Alexandro book I wrote, you know, I, all the reporting for that book was in 2009 and it got published pretty quick and was out in two, 2011. So we're talking like two years yeah. after the bulk of the reporting. And a lot of these people were kind of used to something happened on the course of that meet. And then it was in the next day's paper that I had to tell them, I'm like, listen, I'm not, I don't really care about the hot take. I'm here for like the long haul. Hmm. And uh, so often like when the, I would be among some of the people I was following and then, you know, there would be a horde of reporters and then they would all leave and go try <laughs> to file their stories. And I just kept, I hung back and then I could ask them like what they were thinking about you know the horde flops in and then they, they understood after a while and it like i said it took a long time and it takes a long time but mm. with that patience you can start to get at what really makes that person tick and then you can start at getting a little deeper getting you know what were you thinking here and what were the conversations you were having and you start losing quotes and you start getting into recreated dialogue or if you're around for dialogue you're scribbling like mad or recording yeah and then you have conversation like you do in fiction but it's sometimes very hard to get non-fiction but again it's just like taking the time and being very patient so you can mm. build scenes and deepen character but it takes time now one of my writing acquaintances says a good writer can make any subject interesting to the reader. And I kind of believe this, actually. I think, there, I think there's a lot of truth to that. How do you make a story interesting to, to some, somebody who might not necessarily be interested in, in the subject matter, but you, you want to draw them in? I mean, perhaps we could look, think about that in the context of your book. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your book and how you want to make that interesting to people. Yeah, yeah, that's a, an especially hard sell when you're dealing with horse racing because uh, <laughs> that's what uh, it's. Uh, for some people, they're deeply passionate about it, and you don't have to use any salesmanship. And other people will be like, "What do you mean? Like, isn't there's only one? There's more races than just the Kentucky Derby, or something, or or at Ascot? You know, for you, you know, as you, just to back up a little bit, you know, six weeks in Saratoga, how three year old Philly Rachel Alexandra beat the boys and became horse of the year was my first book it came out mm. a few years ago and you know i was covering horse racing for a newspaper in saratoga springs new york and i uh, had this idea for to shadow let's see i wanted to sh i want to shadow a jockey a trainer a horse and an executive because a lot of times the the racetrack executive is left out of the horse mm. racing books and be like oh yes. it'll be kind of cool to see what what's driving all of these entities and what was great was that what was driving all these entities was essentially where the super horse rachel alexandra was going to run and so everyone was kind of tied to her so she was like the glue of the whole thing mm. but yes to to more to your point of like making something that's kind of esoteric on its top on its surface something that's like oh, i don't really care horse racing who, <laughs> who really cares about that and it's it's really like boiling it down to the essence of what's driving all these characters. And I, I found that all, everyone that I was following, whether it was Calvin Burrell, who was about forty one ish at the time, you know, just won his his second Kentucky Derby towards the end of his career. Uh, Hall of Fame trainer Nick Zito, you know, in his sixties, so kind of towards the end of his career. Charles Hayward, who was the racetrack executive again about 60 so he's kind of at the end of his career and then mm. rachel alexandra three-year-old horse kind of at the end of her career she's in her physical prime as a three-year-old and uh being as good as she is it, like very likely she would retire soon mm. so 
then you're getting at a sense of like, how do these people and subsequently the people connected to the horse want to be remembered? And so that book really, to me, is about legacy. And so maybe if I can drill down, and I don't really outwardly say that in the in the book, but it's like that was kind of the undercurrent that I was I was always thinking about as I was writing it. It's like, all right, how are these people looking to put a big stamp on their career yeah. and how do they yeah. want to be remembered? And so I think <clears throat> With a topic that is a bit hard to get into, like horse racing and so forth, maybe if I can drill down on that real granular thing of legacy, because I think everyone at their heart, they want to leave a a legacy and want to be remembered when they pass. Mm. And so Mm. that was kind of maybe that is my in for a broader audience, even though it was definitely written for the horse racing centric people. So I think if, yeah, if you can find that kind of meaning bubbling and gurgling below the surface, like that's how you're going to pull somebody in. That's how Laura Helen Brand, you know, that's why Seabiscuit was a Titanic bestseller mm. too, because it was kind of symbolic of the Great Depression in the States. There it was a Great Depression story that buoyed up the spirits and it was kind of about America at the time. So yeah, like she's drilling in on that. That's what the research shows over time. Mm. You know, you just got to hang around, do enough research and then these themes start to bubble up and that's what'll really hook a reader. So it sounds as if you're taking a very particular subject, a very particular topic, but finding the, the kind of perennial themes, the eternal themes, the things that are really going to strike a nerve with with more more people through it. So ambitions and dreams and hopes and and all of that kind of stuff, and it, and that that will draw people into the particular story that you're telling. Yeah, exactly. It's it, you know, there's there's a one long essay I'm looking to publish soon. Like I'm shopping it around, and it's you know, on its surface is about. Um, this winter I spent with these guys tapping maple trees and making maple maple syrup out of their backyard mm. and like all the technology that goes into the vacuum system and the reverse osmosis thing of harvesting the sap from the trees, which is 96% water, you know, and you boil it out to the 4% of the actual sugar that gets bottled that goes on our pancakes and waffles mm. and everything <laughs> like And to me, that's kind of interesting on its surface because it's, it's kind of sciencey and it's yeah. sweet and tasty in the end. <laughs> but, you know, I'll, that's kind of about, you know, fraternity and manhood because I also tie in some themes about just not feeling like, you know, very handy and manly, if you will, because, you know, here I am, this writer, the soft hand writer at a keyboard and like this job in the winter there up in upstate New York is very frigid, cold and physical. So it was kind of this return to some utilitarian roots of being useful. Mm -hmm. And also just being a writer and a freelance writer can be really lonely, too. So this was kind of it was kind of about, yeah, just brotherhood and fraternity, Mm. too, you know, but with the backdrop of this really sort of cool homemade maple syrup and at the end it's just you know all that hard work has manifested (laughs) itself in this really delicious plate of pancakes (laughs) now i I want to ask you as well about first lines and first paragraphs because so one of the things i've talked about in the podcast in the the past and writers talk about is you've got to grab the reader immediately and looking at your work it looks like you really do take that to heart you really that's a that's a real thing that you do just reading first lines what is it that you do in that sense, to really grab your reader and hold on to them. Yeah, that's um, you know, to borrow a line from Mary Pallon, who's a a writer I've had on my podcast before, and she's a brilliant journalist and reporter, and really dives into these weird esoteric things and makes them come to life. And she's just like, when you're a writer, especially in this digital age, you're competing with Candy Crush and every other distraction. 
known to man out there. Yeah. And there've always been distractions of some kind or another, but if, if most people have notifications turned on their phone. And if that little buzz or or beep or ding is going to draw attention away. So I think as if you kind of think of it in in terms of what you're doing is some form of entertainment, you know, you really need to give every reader a reason to stay and give them no reason to leave. Mm. And so by hooking them early, you know, you have to sort of earn it. You know, I, you, you got to earn their attention. And the only way to earn it is by just drilling down it with immense rigor that if if I'm lucky, I can get them from sentence one to sentence two and then from paragraph one to paragraph two and from page yeah. one to page two. So, yeah, so I think of John McPhee talks a lot about the lead being the most important thing that is the light that shines through the entire piece. Yeah. And, and in long journalism, a lead can be a thousand words. It can be very long. You know, in a typical news story, you know, your lead is a um, hundred word paragraph, of course. But yeah, it's one of those things you really need to earn the reader's trust. And if you can give them something really tasty right off the bat, be like, okay, here's some, this person kind of knows what they're doing. You know, David Mm. Foster Wallace's leads and, uh, and his tennis pieces are just out of this world. Mm. And (laughs) they, you just, you're like maybe 200 words. You're like, yeah, I'm going along with this guy for the next 20 pages because he is doing something really funny, really witty, deeply detailed, but whimsical and fun. And I'm always thinking about the the beginnings to uh, to earn the reader's attention and then and then equally as much, if not more, the endings, because that's the hammer. You know, if you can yeah. blow some if you can blow someone's hair back at the end and maybe even get them to start reading the piece again, you know, it's like just turn from page 10 right back to page one and just start reading again. And maybe they'll see the connection between the two and they'll just keep going again. And Glenn Stout, the series editor for Best American Sports Writing like a big barometer for him for pieces that he sort of curates to head to, to hand to the guest editor is like, how likely am I to reread this piece? So when he's done and he's just like blown away and he, if he starts reading it again, he's like, yeah, that's kind of the mark of a piece of art yeah. and a great piece of writing. Yeah. So endings and beginnings are just, you know, can't, can't discount the middle either. You can't bore people, <laughs> but true. you know, you want to, you want to throw down the hammer at the end, yeah. but you got to earn the attention at the beginning for sure. Yeah. And I guess we might extend that to titles. I, I do want to share with everybody one of the titles of you, uh, or the title of one of your essays, which I just thought oh, I've got to read this. Um, it's called A Gentleman's Guide to Arousal Free Slow Dancing, which <laughs> I, I thought that's a great title. And because I am naturally analytical in the context of of creating of writing and understanding how the craft works. I, I had to kind of unpick that a little bit, but I wondered if you could, as the person who's come up with that title, presumably, I wondered if you could tell us why you use that title and what is important about using great titles. Yeah. You know, that, that essay to me, like I've, I had that experience in eighth grade and I should say it's about my eighth grade dinner dance and how it was <laughs> a lot of our first dances and certainly semi-formal and first dances that so many of us 13 and 14 year old boys at the time, very first experience of uh, slow dancing with people. And that's going to mm. cause a set of anxieties that none of us had experienced before. And so our worries were just totally rooted in just and in, in male erection and <laughs> 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 uh, just springing that that uh, that embarrassment 
on our on our unassuming you know, partner on the dance floor, and so we were just in, impossibly worried, and so we all had a kind of our own strategies for for coming up with like how to combat that. You know, I even had a friend at one point who would wear like five or six pairs of underwear to keep things <laughs> suppressed. And that, so there's just, uh, there were all these little strategies. I just thought it would just be kind of a cute and charming story. And I think some of the richest things or richest memories I have are from middle school, as hellish as middle school was. But to the point, the, the title too, I love coming up with titles. And uh, I don't know how many of those I workshop just in my own head for that, but I'll often come up with like 10 to 20 different titles that I come up with. It's just like the most fun for me. Um, I love coming up with fun plays on words, puns, mm-hmm. if you will. Mm-hmm. Like I was joking the other day with a coworker that if uh, not that I would ever start a Greek restaurant, but if I started a Greek restaurant, I would call it Achilles Meal. <laughs> and and yeah. and she just started, I, and I I couldn't contain my own laughter, and you know she just started laughing. And it's like I love stupid puns like that. Like The Simpsons is great, has always been great at sign puns and all that stuff. And so a gentleman's guide to arousal free slow dancing just sounded so. It sounded so subversive and so like just fun. You know, it sounded yeah. very sophisticated, but at its at its core, it's just very crude. Also, so so yeah, that was. That was fun. Like the piece of narrative journalism I did, uh, The Day That Never Comes, that was a, a lifted right from a Metallica title okay. that also yeah. seemed to symbolize, you know, the these these parents whose daughter was abducted, raped and murdered. And for a, over 100 days, they didn't know where she was or her fate, but they had a feeling. So the day never just wasn't coming. And then eventually it does. So, yeah, the titles titles are like bait. And then the leads to your stories, as we were alluding to earlier, the, the mm-hmm. beginnings, those are where we earn the attention. And then, mm-hmm. of course, you know, building to some sort of crescendo. But, yeah, I give a ton of thought to titles. So I want to talk a little bit about uh, your process and actually the writing process for you and particularly what advice you might give to writers who are struggling to keep going in the craft. So how do you develop that kind of sense of will and that tenacity to keep going with the project that you're working on? I, I love process too, Andy, and because it's so it's so important to have like some sort of ritual that you have, even if you can't do it every day. And there are some people who don't call you a writer unless you write every day, and I, I'd call BS on that. Mm. Um, Cheryl Strait is probably the greatest proponent of the binge writer. You know, when she's ready to rock and roll, I mean, she will hole herself up in a hotel for like a weekend and just write for fourteen hours a day. But she doesn't write every day. And are people going to go out and say Cheryl Strait's not a writer? And she's given a lot of permission to people who f- who feel like I just, you know, I've got three kids. I'm working three jobs to yeah, do this. Yeah. I don't have the time every day. But they might have two hours on a Sunday. That is their holy time. And they can they can write whatever they want to write, even if maybe they're just sitting there looking out the window thinking about it. Because even that's part of the process. You know, it doesn't always have to be pencil to paper or fingers to keyboard. You know, even thinking about it is part of the process. There are moments you can do kind of a time audit. You know, if you're being super honest with yourself, you can be like, all right, you know what, for today, I'm going to keep a notebook of every single activity I do. I'm like, oh, shoot, like I, 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 I watched four episodes of Parks and Rec on Netflix. Well, that's 80 minutes <laughs> that I need to watch 80 minutes of that. And then you can start seeing like, OK, it's like kind of like budgeting money. You can yeah. budget your time yeah. and it's like, oh, OK, here's where I can shift time. Maybe that means you know, trying to get up 
10 minutes earlier. Maybe you can squeeze out 10 minutes of writing or maybe on your lunch break. You know, you can get a lot done in 30 minutes if you really think about it. You know, maybe you can start stockpiling some ideas and then during your mm-hmm. lunch break, you know, you're nibbling on your sandwich and drinking drinking your sparkling water and you can be writing something. And even if you get 100 words down, my God, that's 100 words and you can start yeah. working with that. That's yeah. going to add up. Momentum generates its own kind of momentum. Yeah, like a Newtonian law. Like when you start going... It's hard to stop a body in motion once it's moving. And so it's just a matter of getting it started. But, you know, whatever it's prioritizing time, because it's there if you can find it. Got to ask yourself, how badly do you want it? If you really want it bad enough, you'll you'll find the time. You'll you'll make it. It's there for you if you mm-hmm. want it. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I, having those routines and processes in place also, like, cuts down on decision fatigue, too. Like, if you can just schedule it in and be like, I, I, that's... Kind of like when you're in in uh, in high school or whatever, you had your classes blocked out, and then you had practice at the end, and you did your homework at night, and decisions were made for you. You just kind of did it. So if you can sort of almost rejigger your mindset mm-hmm. to like, oh yeah, like block it out. And Ben Franklin has his daily planner in his autobiography. You know, these blocks were for this. So, do you have any particular routines or rituals, or I mean, how do how yeah. the particular things that you do on on this? Yeah, for sure. I, I I wish I could like I wish I could say I adhere to it every single day, but I adhere to it most days. Mm. And I like a lot of people. I've got a, a full time day job of forty to forty five hours a week that is r- like chunked right into the middle of my day. So I got to work a lot of my writing and creative and podcasting time around this thing that helps pay bills. But but in terms of my routine, uh, I got to get up early. Uh, It's hard. I get up about (laughs) 4.15 in the morning. And um, (laughs) so I'm up at 4.15. Okay, that is pretty early. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I feel good. I like getting a jump but in a sense, I like getting up that early because I feel like I'm I'm getting like a one up on people who are better than me. So I'm like, I, you know, I, I might not be as good as 90 percent of my peers, but at least I'm getting up earlier than they are. So I get up then and I don't do a whole lot of actual generative work. I found that it, reading in the morning helps. I feel better about reading and I got to read it ton of books for the podcast. So it actually does feel it, it is work, but it's a little more, it's not like me creating anything. So I'm up 4.15 and I just get up and go right to my chair in the living room, turn on the light. And uh, in the morning, reading kind of wakes me up. At night, it puts me to sleep. Yeah. Um, in the morning, I feel like I can, from 4.15 to, oh, about 5.30 to 6, you know, I'm just reading, like right now I'm reading uh, Mary Carr's Lit her uh, you know wonderful memoirs I'm hoping to have her on the show soon because she's got a new book of poetry coming out and um, so I'm, I'm reading that and then uh, at six o'clock um, my wife and the dog are out of bed and from there we go we get we bundle up right now and go out for a walk mm-hmm. you know, 45 minutes to an hour and then then I come back at that point was we're talking about seven o'clock at this point so then I make uh, Melanie's food for the day and feed the dog at after once Melanie gets on her bike and goes goes to work, and then then I've got about an hour to ninety minutes left before I have to start gearing up to go to work so we can get on the bike, and I uh, I'll journal. You know, like you said earlier, I've had a journal forever. Hmm. Um, I, it's important. I love just doing the the Julia Cameron artist way, like you know morning pages type thing. I'm always kind of just riffing on stuff. 
even if it's really negative, I have a tendency to be fairly negative. And sometimes I wonder if being negative in the journal is actually like imprinting that behavior instead of like bloodletting. Hmm. So I often it kind of wrestle like, oh, if I'm purging all this negative stuff, am I just like making it worse by writing about it? But <laughs> in any case, I fix some coffee, French press, uh, or in the summer I, I, I do the whole cold brew thing. And uh, okay. so yeah, coffee is essential. Uh, journaling, um, some podcast promo. I try to automate a bunch of tweets for the day, and uh, and hopefully you know that, that it might be I might be a, a quote or an episode that really is uh, really affects somebody in a, in an important way. Mm. Maybe gives them permission mm. to pursue a story because they heard Susan Orlean or Mary Pallon or Bronwyn Dickey or Andre Debuse talk about how they go about the work and they might be inspired when they hear Andre Debuse. He wrote the house of sand and fog and 17 minute spurts in his truck on the side of the road by a graveyard because <laughs> he had three kids and his wife at home. And he, he, he wrote that book that got you know, made into a movie, a Oprah book club pick, you know, he wrote it longhand in his truck, uh, in 17 minute spurts, you could talk about finding the time to do mm. it. Like that was his mm. holy time. Mm. And, um, you know, he was, carpenter and doing a little teaching on the side. So like he found his time and that was it and he mm. did it, you know? And then, so, so yeah, it's just, uh, that's kind of my routine. And then I, you know, I get done from work at about, Oh, let's see, five thirty. back on the bike you know, home. But by the time dinner's done, it's seven o'clock and I'm pretty useless at night at this point. I'm just watch a couple episodes of parks and then read. I'm in bed by I'm in bed pretty early, usually between 8.30 and 9, read a little bit and I'm out. Okay, there's a couple of things I wanted to pick up on from what you said that, that, that they just reminded me of, of some other stuff that I have talked to people about recently. Uh, first of all, around the importance of our writing time. And I was talking to people about this concept of your, it's urgent that you write. That's, that's, that's kind, of the, kind of the attitude that I take. And urgent not in that it's life or death because if you know if there's a crisis that happens you have to stop and deal with it but at some level because we're all busy it's urgent that we write you know in the time that we've got that that's we've, we've got to do it we can't just drift off and go on social media or netflix or whatever it's urgent to do it mm. um and i wondered if that was that there was some sense of that in not just in writing but in the different tasks that you do outside of paid work yeah certainly it, that urgency comes from a deeply baked, almost genetic onto that nucleotide level of needing to do it. You know, it's, mm. we don't have a whole lot of time on this rock. So it's like, if there's an itch and there's a story that you need to tell or a story that's just, it is just sticking in your brain and it's got to get out. It's got to be you. And you got to, I mean, I, you know, I ride my bike every day to work. I mean, every day I could get T-boned by a bus. So it's, I got to, you know, when I, if I've got this essay or, or a podcast or I'm feeling a little like nervous or timid to go after like a big fish or something, I just got to swallow that fear and say, why? I mean, they, I've got maybe oh yeah, optimistically maybe 40 or 45 more years left uh, to live. So mm -hmm. it's like, I got to, you know, the clock's ticking, <laughs> and, you know, so I think I think people need to almost realize that there's really is what's the worst thing that can happen if you start writing and yeah, you start realize realizing like the more you do this the more you mm -hmm. realize how bad you yeah. are at it and it's <laughs> <laughs> but you but need you to like, anyway. get past that 
you do it anyway because you really have to. It's yeah. it's Andre Debus yeah. on the side of the road. He yeah. had to do it. He didn't yeah. know it was going to be a famous, but he needed to yeah. do it. He needed to get the story out. Yeah. So many people, they just need to. I I think it just it it makes them it, because like Brian Koppelman, a great podcaster and filmmaker, you know, he feels like if people don't if people don't manifest some of these artistic urges that they're going to become toxic to the people around them. And yeah. I really do feel that's true yeah, because sure if there's right. there, yeah, like if there's this itch and you just you can't you can't scratch it or you're not letting yourself scratch it. It's just you're going to be miserable. You're going to just start being toxic to those around you. And you know, if you're going to be the you always want to be one of those people. You're the average of the five people you hang around with. You want to be one of those people who's not a drain. You want to bring up the average of the people around you. <laughs> and and so why not, you know, even if you don't publish anything, I think you're just going to be super happy that you're making something. Yeah. And even yeah. if you're just writing something and you're on a page and then you crumble it up and throw it in the wastebasket. I think, you know, being that process-driven and not outcome-driven can really be – you know, just nourishing in, in a sense. So yes, yeah, yeah. So that urgency, I think people just people just really need to to take up take up the baton that's just there for you to pick up. No one needs to hand it to you. Just you know, just pick it up and run with it a bit. See how it feels. Maybe sure. after a while you realize that well, maybe this isn't so fun. Like and take the pressure off you. Maybe go paint or write poetry or go into woodworking or whatever. Just, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, or go walk up and down. I'll probably today. I'm gonna have a pick stick and a garbage bag. I'm just gonna go walk up and down my main road and pick up trash. You know, I'm just gonna make <laughs> make. I'm gonna make the neighborhood look a little better. You know, that's not exactly art, but it might. People might realize that the the road's a little bit cleaner and feel better about their neighborhood. So it's a you know. It's, so yeah, that's I would good. say yeah, play into that urgency. Just you know, just just. You got to do it, and I it and it just doesn't have to be for anybody but yourself. Yeah. The other thing that really struck me that you were talking about earlier was uh, momentum. Uh, I was speaking at a conference recently, and I said to to the people there, I would much rather do a thousand words a day for five days than five thousand words in one go. I mean, notwithstanding what you were saying about for some people kind of binge writing is fine. And if that's the way they want to go. But I do believe in this sense of momentum, you know, picking up momentum and building a momentum. It sounds as if that's the kind of thing that perhaps you've used as well. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, some days it's it's real. It's real easy to get to a thousand. Sometimes you can, mm. you know, with newspaper training, you know, uh, you can get to a thousand words in a half an hour if you're really humming. But uh, but I I I subscribe to that too i'd rather do you know a thousand a thousand words a day than five thousand and one mm. in one day because yeah it's just uh it's nice to 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 sit in there's less pressure and in, involved with that you know some days that that thousand words might be an absolute slog other days it'll come real easy mm. and and uh, some days you maybe you end up using one sentence out of that thousand words, but it it is it is nice to get into that to that flow. It's a nice little warm pocket that you can just yeah. kind of settle into, yeah. and that is, that is nice. And you realize that oh yeah, this this can be pretty nice, and that that momentum is is really really popping. So uh, with we've been kind of dispensing little bits of advice here. What's the best and worst advice you think you've heard on writing? Let's see. I, th I think some of the worst, and this is this is kind of tricky and kind of controversial. I think on some levels, like I think some of the worst is that you should never write for free. 
And I, I understand both sides of the argument that, you know, people who write for free devalue it for the people who are trying to get paid for it and try to get paid fairly. Um, as, as freelancers, it's, it's really hard to make a go of it. And, and then on top of that, it's like we got to pay like pretty much double taxes. You're paying the employer and the employee taxes because you're self-employed and it's all yeah. this. So there's, yeah. you know, 40 to 50 cents of every dollar gets, gets skimmed off for taxes. Whereas, you know, your normal day job, it's probably closer to 25 or so. So it's, you're dealing with that whole challenge. So people who write for free are sort of, uh, maybe devaluing it for people trying to make a go and get paid a mm. fair amount. But you do need to start somewhere and maybe writing for a high profile website. You know, there is that that transaction or maybe there's a a certain a certain gig that'll get you some more slightly more visibility or even if it's even if it's something that does pay you and maybe it just doesn't pay very much but the platform is huge yes uh, it, yeah. it, it, it could it could help and and uh, and then build you an audience that then goes to your website and then maybe signs up for your newsletter and then if you have a newsletter and you can get several hundred or several thousand people enrolled in what you're doing there then you all of a sudden have a much more marketable mm. audience to maybe go sure. out and get an agent and uh, people who are just into your thing I guess, you know, best, best advice I think is I, I kind of to what we were talking earlier is just, is just doing that a little bit every day and not be mm. overwhelmed by the scope of a project. And you don't have to necessarily write a book. You can just write a short story. And I, I think Hemingway once said like he'd never really once set out to write a novel. I think he just started writing a short story and when it told it, told him to go bigger, he went bigger. Yeah. And so you can, for nonfiction people too, if you're, you don't always have to think of the book, maybe just pitch it as a magazine story and maybe, maybe that's all it is. And then it'll spare you a whole lot of work and grief. <laughs> uh, but then if that magazine story could catch fire and it, it might sell, it might share well across, across the world or across a readership. And then you realize, oh, people want, maybe they want more. But yeah, I would say the best advice that I've heard is just to kind of lower the lower the fear and just kind of just kind of do it and just do that little bit every single day, because mm. um, that way sure. it'll you'll that's how you'll develop voice over time and and uh, knock down knock down those sort of preconceived fears yeah. and you'll close the gap in the mind between the perfect vision and your what you're actually capable of. Yeah. You know, only through that repetition will those two and the ends of those poles get close together. And you, the only way to do it is by putting in the hours. So you might yeah. as well just start <laughs> and carry on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So are there any uh, tools or apps or stuff like that that you find really useful for, for your writing as a stuff that you wouldn't be without at all? Let's see. Let's see. Uh, I use uh, a, a voice recorder for almost all interviews that I do like in the field uh, mm. for sit down interviews for, for stories. Uh, other, I think a good way, um, uh, the best, it's not necessarily a tool. It's just a little strategy of turning off the Wi-Fi when you're in a writing mode and putting on a little egg timer and just, you know, writing for 45 minutes and taking 15 minutes off. So just a little stopwatch 
is a is a great little mm-hmm. tool to just stay focused for a short amount of time. Then get up and walk around, go do some pull ups or push ups, and or go for a little walk, leash up the dog, and go for a walk. Let's see, any other any other tools? Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty I'm pretty analog. Corkboard, tax, and index cards. And, okay. And uh, and if I noodle with fiction, which I I like to do just for fun, I'm uh definitely a I'm a pencil and notebook guy, and I like yeah. seeing my pencils get smaller and then i just when they get too small i i throw them in a jar so it's like oh that's kind of cool i like seeing the pencils add up (laughs) now we've talked a little bit about uh selling your work presenting your work that kind of stuff are there other lessons that you would share with people around sales the sales and marketing side of things how do you how do you go about presenting your work for sale or getting sales of, of your material yeah that's uh as a freelancer as as most of it is that you are like the the marketing and sales department and also the generative art department all wrapped into one. And so, yeah, you you have to kind of divorce the two and then try to get really skillful at, at query writing. And that's, um, I would say, you know what, the, the kind of the big key is actually, it's kind of a numbers game too. Like the more queries you send out, the more likely you'll be able to land stories and you can kind of tier yeah. your queries. Like, all right, I've got a cool story that I think would play well in the New Yorker. Well, I got news for you. There's, <laughs> there's, I think Dave Remnick gets something like 4,000 submissions a month from very, very good writers, <laughs> elite writers. And he already has a stable of the best writers in the world. So if you're really going to crack in there, you know, nice try. It's it. Do it. I do. I submit things that I think would be good New Yorker stories. Then they've, as of yet, all been turned down, and that's fine. But then, so you, you, you know, you have a tiered approach. You know, so maybe it's New Yorker one, and then you just go down the line, and then maybe it'll just end up playing as a regional magazine, and that's great. And they might take it, and that's great practice. But throughout the course of that, you kind of, kind of like we were saying earlier, how you have to earn the reader's attention. Like that yes. query letter yes. is is that you know, in maybe 300 to 400 words. How can you sell this piece? How can you make it relevant to that readership and and wrap it all up? And who are you and why are you good to tell it? And how fast can you do that? <laughs> and so and so there's, there's that and that skill. And I think you only get better at that through repetition. And uh, on top of that, it's like going and maybe shaking someone's hand and being, trying to get a face-to-face interaction and that thing that way you, you, you your query letter might move up a little higher in the pile sure. yeah so that that's kind of a a sort of a tip or a tactic too that sometimes you got to invest in in getting face to face with people and yeah. you know, it could be as simple as it just even in your own little city just maybe have a freelancer get together and you know maybe three people show up the first time but if you tell them to bring a friend next time then you're all of a sudden you're supporting each other and then if a story comes their way and be like oh wow this this is kind of cool. I think it might be a good fit for Andy to do it. And they, they <laughs> give it to you. And, and uh, you got you to gotta meet my friend over here. Like he's the editor or she's the editor of this so-and-so. And then mm-hmm. you just get to talking. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I think uh, you can't discredit that kind of organic networking sure. too. So we're going to finish up in a moment. But before we do that, I wondered if you had, first of all, any kind of critical bits of advice that perhaps we haven't covered for, for writers, stuff that you like, one or two bits that like you really guys really need to remember this and, and apply this. Well, well, really what really pops into head into my head is the sort of that Ira Glassian thing of of the gap. 
And I, I'm sure you have you have you heard him talk about that creative gap? I kind of mentioned it earlier in passing, but um, do, do you know what that is? Well, I don't, and perhaps some of the other people that are listening won't know anyway. So please do share. I mean, I've I kind of know. I was thinking about this American Life when you were talking earlier and that whole kind of situation. But please do tell us about the creative gap. Yeah, it's this thing where. You know, yeah, everyone has their taste and their taste is what makes them listen to a certain kind of radio or yeah. write a certain kind of fiction. But uh, but everyone there. But there is this this gap between what you want to create and what you're capable of creating. And it's this yeah. great little two minute clip. And I just Google Ira Glass the gap and it'll come up. And um, but it's just like over the time, the more you've got to put in put in the hours and put in the time. And eventually the gap between what you're able to create and what you're creating, it starts getting narrower almost to the point after you put in the time. And he's open enough to say that it took him a very long time to get to get to that point. Probably. Oh, well, I, I can't put a number on it, but let's just say it's 15 to 20 years. And then we know we look at him now as this master of narrative radio. And so you, you can't do anything about You can't regret that you started late or you haven't started yeah. yet. All you can do is start. And so, yeah, if you want to, you know, if you're uh, whoever your sort of models are in, in fiction for some of your reader, whether they're the sci-fi crowd of listening, uh, what Neil Gaiman or, or Neil Stevenson or, or whomever and whoever that is, but the, you're never going to start, start manifesting that vision in your, in your head to with what you're capable of, unless you start. And you got a, a friend of mine who's been on my show a bunch of times. He's like, I wrote a million words before I ever got paid for one. <laughs> and so, yeah. and he's one of the best in the business right now. His name is Bryn Jonathan Butler and he's just brilliant and and so there was someone who just wrote because he had to and over over the time it's just like the vision in his in his head and that that gap got closer and closer and closer and he was willing to put in the time because he just loves it so much yeah. and so i think it's just got to it's just a matter of putting in the hours and you can't regret that you didn't start earlier all mm -hmm. you can do is start now and mm -hmm. i guess that would be the best thing i can suggest mm -hmm. whether you want to write fiction or tell true stories or make a documentary film or do a, do a, start your own podcast or something. All you can do is start and start and mess up and experiment and just keep, uh, just keep improving and leaning into it. Cause mm. that's, uh, that's the only way you get better. And that's quite a positive thing. I think I was just thinking about what you were saying that I, I like, I like this concept of there's a creative gap, but you, but as you work, as you, as you hone your craft, you narrow it. I, I think that's a really positive way of looking at things um yeah. i, I want to just finish up now by just giving just asking you about your own work and asking if you could just share a little bit with us about the podcast and other thing other projects you're working on and just maybe how people can find out more about you and find out more about the different pieces of work that you're doing at the moment sure yeah the in terms of writing there are some essays in the hopper that i'm trying to sell and some freelance magazine stuff um a bigger project is a, a baseball memoir uh, called the the Tools of Ignorance, a memoir of my father <laughs> in baseball. And uh, you know, for anyone who knows baseball, the Tools of Ignorance are a nickname for the the catcher's gear. Okay. And uh, and my dad and I were were catchers uh, in some uh, different parts of our our lives, but also it also kind of chronicles the the journey of a, a semi-delusional athlete and a delusional father who thought his son athlete was better than he was and so it kind of chronicles our arc at father and son through baseball 
And so in a sense, we were sort of ignorant tools working our way through the, uh, you know, <laughs> escalate me through various levels of ball. And like I said earlier, I was a competent ball player, but not nearly as good as we thought I was. So that that whole story kind of demystifies competitive sport, uh, but also tells uh, what I think is a kind of touching and redemptive story of um, a father and son's relationship through sport. Um, so that's what I'm trying to sell around shop that around uh but yeah the podcast is the creative nonfiction podcast and it's the show where i speak with the the world's best artists about telling true stories um, narrative journalists uh documentary filmmakers radio producers essayists and memoirists where i kind of tease out origins habits routines key influences mentors processes mm. Mm. and how listeners can cherry pick from those episodes and apply it to their own work. And so that's been, it's been a major focus. It's about five years old, but I really leaned into it, uh, in 2017 re with regularity mm. every week, you know? Mm. I, so, so that's what I've been really working on trying to build, uh, build a, a little, this little community in my corner of the internet uh, around telling true stories and giving people permission to try. And then here's mm. how these masters deal with, crippling self-doubt and anxiety and how they still put out great work in the face of that self-doubt and and everything and, and their stories about rejection and how they mm. cope with that mm. and uh so that's kind of kind of what we dig into and then of course uh my website's brendanomera.com and that's where the home of the podcast is and and sign up for i have a cool monthly newsletter where I send out my four book recommendations, what you missed from the podcast that month. And so that's kind of a fun little thing, just once a month. And uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram at Brendan O'Mara and Facebook at CNF Podcast. So those are all the, where, all, all the places I kind of hang out on the internet. Cool. So I guess if, if people want to just sort of check in and, and then see what's going on with you, they, they, go to, they can start at the website and pick up to the, with the podcast and whatever else from there, can't they? Yeah, that's yeah. probably the, the hub. And then you can go explore the spokes of the wheels out from that hub okay could you just 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 in case anybody listening to this is hovering over the keyboard do you want to just spell out your particularly your surname for us so so the, the guys know how to how to get to that sure yeah i'll spend the yeah the the whole thing uh yeah brendan is b-r-e-n-d-a-n and omera for website purposes no apostrophe so it'll just be o-m-e-a-r-a -A. cool all one so brendanomera.com yeah okay that's great. We've, we've had that, well, we've had our hour and ten minutes, uh, Brendan. That so is wonderful. I right. flew by, and I'm just like deeply grateful that you that you had me on, and so I could uh, speak with you and 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 your listeners too. Thank yeah, you so much, Andy. Brilliant. Okay. Well, thank you very much, Brendan. Cheers. You got it. Take care. And you. Cheers. Bye. -bye. Thank you for listening to the Creative Writers Toolbelt podcast. If you want to find out more about the podcast or me, just go to my website. It's andrewjchamberlain.com.